Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, honourable gentlemen, he talks about an extension to Article 50 or a second referendum. That doesn't actually solve the problem. That doesn't deal with the issue. The issue is very simple. Do we want to leave with a deal or without a deal? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, is Brexit happening? This week, Britain's Prime Minister Theresa May confirmed that she would request an extension to the leaving date of the 29th of March if Parliament hasn't agreed to her leaving plan by then. Well, my guest today has thrown a big cat among the pigeons in these fraught weeks of standoff between Britain's government and the EU over Brexit leaving terms and a series of knife-edge votes in Parliament. Sir Ivan Rogers knows both ends of that telescope – He was Britain's permanent representative to the European Union, but he resigned in January 2017, shortly before Brexit negotiations began. He's also an expert in the meandering ways and means of government and international organisations. Sir Ivan got to know Theresa May as Home Secretary when she was pushing for EU opt-outs. Long faulted by Eurosceptics as too gloomy on the matter, his latest book, Nine Lessons in Brexit, is short but acerbic. He outlines what politicians need to learn in order to avoid a descent into a more troubled relationship with the EU and deeper schisms on the home front. Ivan Rogers, welcome to The Economist Asks. And thank you very much for having me on. So, simple question, I suppose we could get it over with in three words. Is Brexit happening? Yes, I believe it will. Um, it's it's proving a complex and fraught process. And that, as you said in your introduction, that doesn't surprise me. It surprises me less than probably anybody else in the country. It is complex. It will be lengthy. It's a tortuous process. But I don't think it's very likely to be stopped or reversed. And I think the real imperative for both sides of the channel is to think deeply about where we're going and how we get there and what's the uh, best and most amicable relationship that can be built over a decade or two. Can't be stopped or reversed. Uh, Many people, we're talking in a week where there's been some sort of offer around a second referendum from the Labour Party, the main opposition here in Britain. We'll dig into that a bit later. What's changed this week? We've seen Theresa May now effectively offering a parliamentary check on no deal. We know that Parliament does not like the idea of leaving without a deal. Neither does The Economist come to that. (laughs) Do you think that something material has changed in the Prime Minister's handling of Brexit in these days around the time I'm talking to you? Well, I think it is an important move. I think she's under immense pressure to rule out no deal. She hasn't wanted to rule out no deal because she has 
Domestically, she's wanted to run the strategy of saying it's either my deal, the one on the table, or it's the abyss, uh, i.e. no deal. And she's wanted to close down other options and say no other options exist. So her strategy domestically, certainly in the House of Commons, has been to put people up against it and say we're right up against a deadline. And if you don't ultimately rally to my deal, the alternative is no deal and you don't really want that. Uh, that so far hasn't worked as we've seen on the uh, the first meaningful vote that we had in January and she lost by a huge majority. Uh, and then as nervousness has grown both within her party and more generally in the country and above all, of course, in the private sector about the possibility that we might tumble out of the European Union without any deal at all, she's come under more and more pressure to rule it out, which is not where she's wanted to go. You know her thinking, well, you were there at the beginning of the, the process. You obviously didn't like the way that uh, Brexit negotiations were going because you didn't hang around that long. But you do know the way that she thinks. It, might she not be right to think that removing no deal is an option does weaken her negotiating position? Well, I think in any negotiation, you've got to know whether you can walk out. And indeed, that was my advice to her, as it's been my advice to other prime ministers. You've got to know in any negotiation uh, whether the alternative of quitting the negotiation altogether and getting up from the table and saying we can take this no further is viable. The problem in most negotiations, after all, is that the default is essentially the status quo. And therefore, you nearly always do have a walkout option of terminating talks and saying this isn't going anywhere or anywhere that's acceptable to me. The problem when the Brexit negotiation is the default in the event of a no deal is not the status quo. It's about as different from the status quo as it's possible to be. There's a lot of confusion, incidentally, still on that in the in the public world. Lots of people you talk to, real people in the real world, believe that no deal might mean a status quo exactly as they've got it at the moment. And you have to explain to people, no, it means a really dramatic change from the status quo because we'd be tumbling out without without legal arrangements governing a large tract of the economy. It's always valuable for a negotiator to keep a no-deal option on the table and say, if, if this ends up in something which I regard as utterly unacceptable and a bad deal for the country, I won't sign it. But you've got to know in a no-deal scenario that you could do it, and you've got to know what you would do and what your contingency plans are. And you've got to know as well in this, and this is what's so difficult for the Prime Minister and for others in government, you've got to know what the other side might do in circumstances of a no deal, not to punish you, but to make life much more difficult. Because if you walk away from the table, you refuse to pay the money, uh, you refuse to sort the Northern Ireland backstop problem, and you refuse to deal with the issue of citizens' rights. The other side inevitably will think, well, how do we bring the British back to the negotiating table with their wallets open, uh, prepared to pay the money that they agreed more than 18 months ago they were going to pay? So here's something I've never quite understand about the time that, that you, you left. Yep. Uh, a very interesting time, really, one would think, to be in the driving seat, potentially, of, of negotiations very close to the prime minister on a matter of national and European import. What made you think, I can't go on with this from that early point, what were the signs that things were going wrong in that relationship? Well, I think uh, the Prime Minister inherited the job, uh, expecting it to be a competition for the leadership of the Conservative Party and, and then the prime ministerial role. Uh, she got it in the end, in the absence of a competition, became a coronation because all the other, all the other leader candidates... This is after David Cameron had lost the referendum yeah, and there was the big opening. Yes. And she, was, she was not prime expecting minister. to become prime minister as early as July. So Theresa May inherited mm. in July in 2016, much earlier than she expected and without a competition. Domestically, of course, given that she was known as 
a quiet voice in favour of Remain, not an enthusiastic Remainer, but a Remainer. She had to allay the concerns of the party faithful in the Conservative Party that uh, she wasn't going to undermine Brexit, she wasn't going to overturn it, she wasn't going to sabotage it, she was going to deliver it. And therefore, the domestic political imperative that we were facing, which I totally understood at the time, mm. was to go for a hard version of Brexit and be very clear that she was going to deliver a, a hard, unequivocal Brexit, hence the red line she set up in the party conference in Did October. Did you argue with her about that? Well, we didn't really have the chance. Now, party conference speeches are party conference speeches for leaders, but usually as a civil servant and a senior civil servant, you would see the leaders' party conference speech. None of us saw it, including the then cabinet secretary. I didn't see it. Bear in mind, the prime minister then was still very new. She hadn't attended a single leaders' meeting, a so-called European Council meeting with fellow leaders around the European Union. I'm the man in possession in Brussels saying... She needs to get to know these people. She needs to say broadly how she sees the Brexit process. She hasn't yet had even a first very indicative informal set of conversations. And then by the time she arrives at her first ever leaders council in the middle of October, she's already given what in European eyes, I was obviously in discussion with very senior European figures, both from the member states and from the European institutions. They were very shocked that she'd taken quite such a hard line position, which in their view took us to the mid-Atlantic further out than... Switzerland, further out than Norway, further out even than Turkey, because they assumed that we were leaving the customs union. So leaving the single market, leaving the customs union, ending free movement of people, ending the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, ending major budgetary contributions, and having a sovereign trade policy. This struck Brussels as a very radical hard Brexit, baked in by the Prime Minister before she'd even really had a chance to. Now, that's her prerogative. She's the Prime Minister. I was perfectly happy and perfectly prepared to work on any version of Brexit and knew that any version of Brexit was likely to involve us leaving the single market. The difficulty when you're in that job, and obviously you're working, and it's a huge privilege and pleasure to do so, insane hours for the the taxpayer and for the Prime Minister of the day, you do have to feel that the advice that you are giving from your seat... And your job is, after all, to give the best possible assessment. Sounds like you don't think she was listening, short form. Well, short form, I think the people around her weren't and weren't prepared to. I think they thought that these were European preoccupations and from somebody, you know, enmeshed and embedded in the Brussels system. That is, of course, the job of the ambassador to know instinctively and know in depth the views of the other side of the table. You have to find a way of relaying that in a way that gets through into a very hot political environment at home, where inevitably any new prime minister coming in is going to privilege the domestic political handling over the European political handling. But you then, if you're not careful, I'm afraid that I do think the combination of her party conference speech in October 2016 and the Lancaster House speech she gave in January 2017 locked her into a position from which then gradually over the last 18 months to two years, she's had to back away. But every time she backs away from it, and this was inevitable from the outset, the right wing of her own party accuses her of betrayal and of uh, of gradually giving away the true Brexit. So what would be a sort of conversation or a moment when that came home to you? Because I'm, I'm interested in the way, because you are a high-level career sort of diplomat, you talk directly to Theresa May. Yeah. But what's the moment when you felt this rather viscerally? Well, I think it was around the party conference speech and then the reactions to it that I got in Brussels. We were having regular uh, weekly briefings with her with very few senior officials present. 
Um, she was always a, a you know a pleasure to do business with and to talk to, and we had very open contact and open access to to her personally. We were working through issues. I which, thought you said she was closed off. No, I I I I don't think closed off. I think it was sometimes difficult to lodge advice. Um, directly into her or through her advisors. But I always found her personally open to hearing views in the room and in conversations. But inevitably, when you're in Brussels, you're 200, 250 miles away from the action. You're not in the, you're not in the bunker and you're not in, uh, in Downing Street. Well, let, let's talk about some of your lessons that pertain to that, of, of your nine lessons of Brexit. It has a faintly sort of <laughs> gospel-like... <laughs> It was a a pre-Christmas, yes, (laughs) proposition. You you have a pulpit, but you have to take some questions too. So what's the most important of the nine lessons? That Brexit is a process, not an event. It's a process of extricating yourself from um, a union that has indeed, as the Eurosceptics always allege, got into every nook and cranny of British economic, social and political life that it can't be a rapid process. You can't just snip the strings that we've had in every area of policy with the European Union uh, and expect nothing to happen as a consequence or nothing bad to happen as a consequence. And therefore, it's going to be quite a tortuous, lengthy set of negotiations across every sector of the UK economy and society, as well as the security agenda. And you can't do that rapidly. So I think that's the cardinal lesson I would draw from it. I do think the British political elite has struggled with the idea. They've always wanted either a clean break Brexit or a much faster Brexit. Why can't we get on with it? Why is this going to take longer than the Second World War? Totally understandable political reflexes. But it is going to take a long time because, first of all, under the treaties that we have, you have the withdrawal process. We're already 32 months after the referendum. Mm. We're still struggling to complete even the withdrawal process. We haven't even begun the trade discussions, which, in my view, will be more complex and more conflictual. This is all going to take a lot of time. And we start from the presumption that quite a lot of what we like about the world uh, that we currently live in should just be retained and it's common sense to roll it over. Europeans start from the angle of you chose to leave. It was a sovereign decision to leave. You've taken yourself out of the institutions. You don't like the juridical structures. You don't like living under a supranational court. You don't like supranational legislation. It's your choice, but there are the consequences for your choice, and that will mean less market access for your goods and services. But there are consequences from the European side too. Absolutely. And I think we started to allude to them. Sometimes it's seen as if people want to make things sound better for Britain than they say, oh, it'll be terrible for Europe as well. So I'm not asking you in that spirit. But it is very difficult, is it not, for the European Union in times of fraught in its own terms about what its mission is and and how it deals with with many challenges, economic, populist and others across the continent. So what's at stake for the EU? Well, I would argue a lot is at stake for the EU and that we are outside the EU going to be the most important strategic partner and economic partner and trading partner for the EU in the hemisphere. And therefore, it's an enormously important relationship for them to get right. I think they want a deep and close relationship, both on the economic and trade stuff and on the security, uh, defence, foreign policy, intelligence and indeed justice and home affairs, and they ought to want that. I'm sure they do want that in a way. Where I think they've made a mistake, although it's entirely predictable that they would do it, is they set up, via the Article 50 process, a brilliant technocratic process for running uh, a withdrawal negotiation, very much on their terms, and delivering what they wanted from it. 
leaders themselves have spent very little time discussing Brexit. And the temptation on the European side has always been to say, well, unless and until London says something more intelligent and more considered and more viable and more negotiable, there is nothing to react to. And that's always a temptation to keep on saying to the other side of the table, well, I'm afraid nothing you've said so far mm. is very coherent and makes sense. And it's like a bad said, therapy session. It's, yeah. Well, and, but then in the end, that doesn't work. What do they want out of the relationship with the UK? They may regret, most do regret that the UK is leaving, but they've come to terms with the fact that it is leaving. They must know that when we leave, um, it's going to be a more complex, more difficult, but in some senses, just because of scale, a more important relationship than with Norway or with Switzerland or with other non with other European players who are outside the European Union. So they need their own propositions for what's the structure of that? How does it work? What do we most care about? Where do we desperately need the Brits still at the table and still participating alongside us in things? How do we engineer that so that the Brits feel comfortable with it, so that they're, they're not enmeshed in all our institutional structures, but they still want to work intensively with us on all the issues that we have in common? Because I would still argue that between the British and many of the other key players around the European Union, there's an awful lot of policy common ground. How do you make that work with a partner that's chosen to leave your institutions and your court and your supranational legislation? That can't be beyond the wit of man. But just saying you have a choice between a Norwegian model and we don't like any Swiss model and there's a Ukrainian model. In other words, you've just got to follow one of the existing precedents. I think when you're dealing with a power the size of Britain and the economy the size of Britain, it's difficult to proceed in that way. You're going to have to think innovatively and in, ingeniously over the next decade, how are we going to make this relationship with Britain at least as productive and constructive as it can be? The second referendum has hovered around as a possibility for some, an enticing prospect. The Economist has seen it as a potential way of everything else is failing. Parliament can't come to a settled or satisfactory view. Then go back to the peoples, the people who voted first time around. Don't be afraid to go back to them. This week, Jeremy Corbyn seemed to move his policy as Labour leader in that direction, although it's still vanishingly unclear what, and you're laughing already, what he means by a second referendum. So... Two points, really. Should there be one? And any chance we're going to get one? Well, perhaps I should take those in reverse order. Uh, I think um, it, it's still very unlikely that we'll get one, but you can't rule it out because if we are, if we carry on being paralysed and even the next version of the meaningful vote doesn't get through, even if there is then a modest extension in the Article 50 timescale, in the end, there has to be some answer to paralysis. The conventional answer in the UK system has always been to hold a general election. It's perfectly possible, given the state of our politics, that a general election wouldn't resolve the issue either. On the argument for a second referendum, it is clearly that now the public can see a destination of sorts hoving into view, though it's still, frankly, rather unclear what the destination is, because as I've been saying, we haven't yet really negotiated in depth about what the future relationship will look like. We've got some outlines of it. But now maybe you've got a sufficient outline of it that the public can see broadly what it might look like. And the argument for a second referendum is obviously now they can see broadly what it would look like when they had no opportunity to see that in 2016. They might not like the look of it. Why not give them a fresh vote? I do think there's a problem with that personally in that the public was not told in 2016 that there would be another referendum at the end of the process. 
And just in terms of democratic theory, and it's very important that we respect an enormous democratic mandate, we haven't yet fulfilled the mandate of the first referendum where the British public gave the political elite the instruction to get us out of the European Union. Now, if you're Are then... Are you suggesting we should leave and then if we want to apply to join again? Well, I think... There is an argument that those who either want to remain or will, if we leave, uh, definitively want to rejoin should have to make the case for rejoining and apply again under the accession processes of the European Union and make the case afresh for why after exit it's better for the UK to go back in. We may get there in five years' time, 10 years' time, 20 years' time. Do you think that that would be a thinkable I think it's thinkable. I personally think it's quite unlikely um, because the question is, will the European Union have moved on in a direction which makes it potentially even more uncongenial for the Brits to join? So, for example, the budgetary settlement that we had, which some of us as Treasury insiders painfully both negotiated and protected for the last 25 years, would that be on offer to a, to a UK which had left the European Union but chose to rejoin? I don't think we would get the rebate that Margaret Thatcher won in 1984 at, the, at Fontainebleau again if we had to rejoin the European Union because I don't think there'd be any appetite from the European Union side to give us that deal. I don't think the European Union, if we did leave and then wanted to rejoin, I don't think they would impose the condition on the UK that we would have to join the euro or would have to join the Schengen zone. But you can't rule that out because everybody else who, after all, has joined the European Union, they have been under that obligation. Something we've been even stronger about in saying that we really feel that this is not acceptable is no deal and the risks that that would entail. Yeah. I don't think your view differs uh, very much for, from the economist's line on that. But let's let's turn it on its head. We look fairly at the arguments of those who think differently. You could uh, revert to WTO rules. You could say that would also, and I know you're going to tell me it's a contradiction, <laughs> but it does appear that some uh, countries on WTO rules also have preferential trade deals if those deals appear to be attractive enough. Sounds all right. Well, the argument for going full out and then negotiating your way sort of not partially back in, but to a preferential deal uh, is being made by Eurosceptics here. And it's a kind of it's time to get on with it. It's time to leave. This has gone on for too long. Let's have a clean break. And then then either the proposition is the European Union side of the table will come running towards us because they'll recognize lots of things have been lost and they, they will need to put together rapidly a whole suite of mini deals, as they're called, to replace the existing arrangement. And because they don't want to live with WTO terms and therefore it'll all be all right. I have to say I don't buy that. An awful lot of the relationship that we have with the European Union, which we've negotiated uh, over the last 30 or 40 years as part of the European Union, um, is not covered by WTO rules. So I think of issues like data, for example. Mm. You know, trade is not now all about tariffs and about goods and about widgets uh, uh, being exported across the Atlantic. It's often about things like data, data flows and data protection and data privacy rules. Those don't exist at the kind of global level such that if we left, all of complete continuity would be assured by the WTO. Nothing is assured by the WTO. The same applies on banking and insurance and other bits of financial services. There are multiple areas of the economy where the depth of integration that we used to have via European Union membership, if that disappears in a puff of smoke when we leave with no deal... Nothing that the WTO prescribes or delivers. After all, the WTO is not a set of rules. It's a set of commitments that you make into inter international organization. So 
it's not that miraculously a feather bed appears across the entire economy where you're fine, even though you're at much lower levels of integration. There are various areas where simply the absence of law that you have and the absence of relationship is replaced by nothing until you've negotiated something else. Secretary for International Trade, Liam Fox, clocked up a fair number of air miles. I think some paper, yeah. newspaper helpfully counted them up. It was a lot of a air lot. miles. Yeah. Uh, I think he can fly around the world for the rest of his life, really. Is he achieving anything? I think he's right to be doing it. I think he is achieving things, but he's proving the point that I made two and a half years ago, that it's vastly more difficult and tortuous and lengthy. Why is he trying to do it? Precisely the point I'm trying to make. It's not acceptable for the UK simply to leave the preferential deals that it has by dint of EU membership with key third countries from Japan to South Korea to Canada to other major players and then default to WTO terms. Because if we did, UK exporters and UK businesses would be at a disadvantage compared with all the EU. So why is he peddling around the world and why are his department peddling around the world? They don't want to default to WTO terms when they're dealing with the rest of the world. Where there are preferential deals in place that they have via EU membership, they are trying desperately hard simply to roll those over in order to stand still on those arrangements. That tells you everything you need to know. If that's true for the rest of the world and the UK's relationship with the rest of the world, it must be, by definition, true in the EU. We can't want to go very substantially backwards from the existing preferential arrangements we've got to a WTO world. The, the two propositions are mutually contradictory. If the 65%, I'm told by insiders, uh, of all UK trade is actually covered by preferential deals, it's not under WTA rules. About a month out from what was thought to be leaving day, 29th of March, looks like the Prime Minister is now prepared to offer an extension to around June or the, the end of June. Any point in doing that? Well, they, we are running out of time. We've only got uh, a bit over four weeks to go. The reality is that even if there is a deal, and it's not imminent in my view, uh, not certainly within the next few days, there then is a whole raft of implementing legislation to bring that into effect and, and to give effect to the deal. And that's complex legislation on which both houses of parliament will need some time. So I've always thought that March the 29th would prove to evaporate as a date and we would need an extension simply to implement the deal, even if the Prime Minister got her deal. Is she going to get her deal? I think it's still very possible she will get a deal. The difficulty she has is, as we all know, around the Irish backstop question and the question of what you do uh, to avoid a hard border across the island of Ireland has become absolutely central. And the Prime Minister has made that commitment in good faith that she would avoid that. But... If you leave the customs union and you want an independent trade policy and operate a different tariff policy and trade policy, it's very hard to see how you avoid a hard border across the island of Ireland because by definition you'll be operating a different tariff regime from across the border. We're going to spare ourselves the luxury of a long discussion on this yeah. show on the backstop. We certainly have got them out there if anyone wants more detail on that. But is there a way around this? You know the deep state magic. Yeah. What's the way around the backstop issue? Solve it for us. <laughs> I wish there were a resolution, either technological or administrative. There isn't yet. Can it be developed over the next five to ten years? Possibly. If there were 
technological and administrative solutions that worked for the Northern Irish border, they would already be operating at the Norwegian-Swedish border because Sweden is a member of the European Union. Norway is much closer to the European Union than our Eurosceptics aspire to be. It's in the so-called European economic area. But you still have a hard border between Norway and Sweden. Why do you have that? Because there aren't brilliant technological solutions yet available to obviate the need for a hard border there. If they're not available there, they're not yet available for... That's not a solution. That's a yes, but no, but... That's a yes, but no. I agree. I I don't rule out that over a period of years, that could be done with goodwill on both sides and a determined effort, a trade deal and all, all that goes with it. The problem is the other side does not want to commit and in my view will not commit to a date certain by when that can happen and they're not going to allow the British to have a unilateral right to decide when they exit without a backstop coming into force. Elegantly put. Didn't, didn't sound like a solution, however. <laughs> we might need to get back to you. Maybe our listeners can tell us they, they can go and solve the, solve the backstop problem and get in touch with us. What's the leaving date for Britain getting out of the EU if we do? Uh, I think pretty soon. It will be either late spring or the summer if it happens. I don't think a long extension is viable or easy because I think we would then have to hold European Parliament elections here at the end of May. And I don't see any appetite from our major parties to do that. I think it will happen in 2019. I suppose my key point is the really difficult part of the process, which is the real texture and depth of the future relationship is all still ahead and all has to be negotiated over the next three to five years. And I do think that will take three to five years before we have a resolution of the economic and security relationship. Ivan Rogers, thank you. Thank you. And we want to hear what you think. Will Brexit happen? Are you as gloomy as Ivan? And have you got your own personal solution to the Irish backstop? I'll be your Brexit agony aunt, radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.